So um, if you want to, open up your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 28. As you're opening up there, I want to share some things with you to set this up. Have you noticed, whether it's in your communities or in your family, especially on TV, that it is more and more cool to be, quote, spiritual? You guys see that? Um, It's more and more accepted and even admired if you can say, I am, quote, a spiritual um, person. And on one level, I want to draw out the positive of this because um, what that means is that there's a re-emerging emphasis in Western culture that we aren't just body, but we're body and soul, and that both need to be tended and cared for and taken care of. And so this is a good thing that people are recognizing um, that there's something more than just this earth. There's a, a realm that, quite honestly, we cannot see, but we interact with on a very daily basis. Uh, people are thinking about the afterlife more honestly, than they have ever before. And those are acceptable discussions to a point. Now, there's an unspoken mantra, often unspoken. I want to say it to you. This is the undertone, the ethos of what we'll call the emerging American spirituality. I want you to listen carefully to the words I say. Here's the mantra. Everything spiritual is permissible and good unless it hurts someone else. Everything spiritual is permissible and good unless it hurts someone else. And here's what I want to say, and then I want to show you this in Scripture and watch how this plays out with Saul. Simply because something is spiritual does not make it good, good for us, and it does not mean that we will be better off for it. And here's something that this statement does not take into consideration— The spiritual realm with angels and demons is real, and it is at war with itself. You hear us talk about how we often are at war with the demonic realm or Satan or the spiritual realm in one sense. But here's what I want you to understand, that when you think about the spiritual realm, it's not just a human uh, body's physical spiritual battle. It is a spiritual on spiritual battle where this is not a neutral field. There is much spiritual blood shed and spiritual warfare. It is intense. It is real. And just because you cannot see it does not mean it does not exist. So uh, I want you to to hear a couple scriptures with me and unpack this, and this is really going to set us up to get into this text here. 2 Corinthians 11.14, it says this, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Why do we put on disguises? To cover the reality of what's really going on. Okay? And so here's what we find is that Satan is a spiritual being and he disguises himself. He masquerades as an angel of light. He walks around and he says, no, this is good. You should try this. Um, dabble in this. This is helpful. It'll heal you. It'll give you power. It's better for you. And he steps back at the end of the day and this is what God says. He's masquerading. He's trying to make you think everything is good and neutral and there is no battle whatsoever. But the Bible overwhelmingly wants you to know, don't believe the masquerade, the disguise, or the lie, because darkness is real, and it is at odds with light. It is at odds with goodness. Another one is First uh, Corinthians 10.20. It says this, what pagans sacrifice. Now, when we think of pagans, we usually think of maybe atheists. I want you to think of pagans in this context means they're worshiping gods that are not Jesus. Usually it's a polytheistic, some sort of religion like that. And these people are worshiping, but do they think they're worshiping a demon? No, they actually think they're worshiping a god. 
But here's what Paul says about this. He says this. What pagans sacrifice, or what they worship, they offer to demons and not to God. In fact, what he says is when you look at false religions and spiritualities, we'll break it down like this. Any spirituality that is not firmly rooted through faith in Jesus Christ alone is not from God and is at odds with God and is in a battle with God. And so any spirituality that is void of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as Jesus as God alone, God in the flesh, is at battle with God and they are warring. And the, the dark side wants to trick you to think that it's neutral or good, but it's not. They're a battle. And he says this, I don't want you to participate with demons, okay? Well, Jesus, why wouldn't you want me to participate with demons? Well, let's let him answer that question. John 10, 10, he shows the juxtaposed agendas of these two realms. And I want you to listen carefully. The thief, which is a name for Satan here, comes only. Can you say the word only with me? Only. That wasn't loud enough. Only. Only. The thief comes only. There's no other motive here. This is what he wants to do with you. Steal, to kill, and destroy. That's his job. He masquerades as an angel of light. He wants you to partake partake in practices that are not rooted in faith in Jesus Christ alone, according to the word of God. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. And at the end of the day, culminating in destroying you. There is no other motive that drives him. Jesus, on the other hand, is a beautiful, kind, loving master. And here's what he says. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So now, is it fair to say that there is a battle in the spiritual realm against itself, and this is not morally neutral territory, but this is vicious? Well, let's keep going. Daniel 10, 12 to 13. Daniel needs God to give him an answer to something. And Daniel prays. And so God sends an angel to Daniel to give him the answer. Listen to this text, and many of you have never considered this before. This, I was... 11th grade for the first time blew my mind when I read it. The angel says to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now listen to this. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. I want you to catch what's going on. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a human being, but it is an angel. And here's what we find as we dig into the word of God and uncover what the Bible says about the spiritual realm is that there is a hierarchy. It is incredibly organized, systematic, purposeful. It is not accidental. I think sometimes we get this idea that the spiritual realm is just a bunch of demons and angels running around. They have orders. They have hierarchies. They have kings. And they have princes. They're given authority over territories and lands. I mean, if you think about the orchestration and the organization of these realms, but it's not just the demonic realm that has it. The angelic realm has it as well. So this angel is sent by God to give a message, and he gets stuck. He actually gets trapped, and he gets put, and we we can't see it all, in some kind of prison. But it says this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. He kept him for 21 days. But Michael, who is, we know from Scripture, an angel, one of the highest-ranking angels on God's side. But Michael came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. I mean, do do you hear 
the hierarchy, the organization, and whatnot, do you hear that there's actually two sides to this realm? And this is not a morally neutral, this is not a, a battlefield at peace. They're not just hugging each other and saying, oh yeah, be on that team or that team. It is vicious, it is vile, it is intense. And you and I live on this side of things where we're not able to see this maybe as clearly as we hope. But the word of God speaks directly um, to this stuff. And so in 1 Samuel 28, Saul begins to dabble in this world. He does not have a long history with this, with this world. He dabbles at it and he experiences devastating consequences right off the bat. So turn with me to um, 1 Samuel 28. We'll start in verse 3. We'll set up some context. It says this, Now Samuel died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. <clears throat> now this is important because uh, we already learned in chapter 25 that Samuel's dead. This isn't a surprise. But the author's going to tell you some things, and he wants you to know that you know that you know that Samuel is actually dead. It's a fact. They buried him. So what you're going to learn about the deceased Samuel is not like some uh, trick or imagine it. He's dead. Okay? So Samuel dead? He's dead. Second thing you need to know is this. And Saul, verse 3, in the middle, put, had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, which is good because the law told Saul that he needed to do this. And here's what it means, that there's one point in Saul's kingship, relationship with God, where he said, I'm going to go kill all of the mediums, all of the necromancers, all of the people who practice divination. I'm going to go kill them and put them to death. Now, the word medium, it's an interesting word. It's the word ob. And it was given this name because that's the sound that the mediums would make when they would call on demonic spirits. And so they actually named the the word after um, what they did to summon them. Uh, But at the end of the day, some of you might be thinking to yourself, Michael, is this really that big of a deal? I mean, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, you know, and it helps me, um, and actually, like, it really, like, makes my life easier and better, makes me feel better about myself, I mean, God wouldn't really be upset about something that makes my life better, would he? So, you, you got to bear with me for a moment. The scriptures we're going to read are intense. Um, they're probably far more intense than if you have not been to church much or read the Bible a lot, than what you're used to hearing about God. And one of the things I prefer to do is blow up your wrong ideas about God and reframe them with the Word of God. So for some of you, I want to blow up your ideas of God, and I want to give you a new category for God. And I want you to not just see what God thinks about this issue. I want you to see what he feels about this issue. So we'll start in verses, or chapter, or Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 to 12. Says this, when you come, God is speaking to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Is abominable a pretty strong word? There's actually no word to, that expresses a greater emotion of disgust. Okay? So when you hear this word, I don't want you to think, oh yeah, he kind of doesn't like it. I want you to think this God is disgusted at the practice. So then he explains some of these practices just to make sure you know that nothing's left out. Here are all the things that he feels very strongly about. Um, Verse 10, Deuteronomy 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughters as an offering. So these false religions, which were demons that were masquerading as an angel of light, would trick these people and say, you need to kill your firstborn son or daughter by burning them alive in a fire, then you'll make me happy. Do you see? Steal, 
kill, destroy. People actually were so deceived uh, because the demonic realm and this practice was so spiritual and powerful and real and tactile and tangible. People actually believed that the gods in charge of this were the master gods, the chief gods, the gods in control of everything. And they believed that if I don't do this, then they're actually going to be the one to harm me because they're um, top dog. And so they would do this. And this was one of the main practices of these false religions. But then he says this, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires the dead for, now this is, this is a word you got to catch, whoever. When you have the word whoever, is it referencing a person or an action? Whoever. Person, right? Okay, good. Um, gram- this is good grammar, guys. Is- so he's going to talk about a person. I want you to hear what he says about the person who does these things and not the action. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So the person, not the deed, like we hear often, in one sense this is true, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? And so as a Christian, like that's our job, God is a little bit bigger and better and more awesome than us, that there actually is people that he steps back and he says with all the emotion he can muster, that person, who does this is an abomination. Do you feel the weight of that, right? And you read that, and I'm like, wow, Lord, that, like, that's hard. There's something so devious and dark about these practices that it puts God literally into a place of rage. It angers him emotionally. Now, I want to unravel this a little more. Leviticus 26, it says this, if a person turns to mediums or necromancers, and here's the word, whoring after them, spiritual adultery, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among all the people. Are those powerful words? Like, it goes on. Leviticus 20, 27. A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. So the nation of Israel, it was their job. Even if they found one, they must execute that person immediately. Whew, like, I'm really glad. (laughs) Like, we don't live under the law right now. Um, Revelation 21.8. You should be asking, okay, Michael, that's the law. That's for Israel. So what about the church? Like, does, this, does God still feel this way? And I have good news. God doesn't really change his mind, so that's wonderful. Revelation 28. And uh, actually, Revelation 28, you might want to just mark that in your Bible. Go back and read it. It is a powerfully um, uh, convicting passage. It's just verse. But I'll read it for you. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. I mean, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, and then here's the word, sorcerers. Sorcerers is the New Testament word that takes all the Old Testament practices of witchcraft, uh, wizardry, magic, all that other stuff. It's an all-encompassing word. It says all of those people, when you put them there, okay? Uh, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Does God feel intensely about this issue. Yeah. Like, those are heavy. I'm, I'm reading these things, and I'm like, whoa. Like, I don't even want to go near anything that puts God in a place like that. And here's what I want you to know. Divination, source, all this stuff, God is not upset about it because it's futile, or it's like a magician who has like a sleight of eye tricks, or like pulls a rabbit out of his hat. I'm like, oh, how do you do that, Right? He is angry at it because it is real, because it 
is powerful because there is a demonic realm that people have learned to tap into and to utilize. But here's the deal. Every single time anyone dabbles in the demonic realm in any occult practice, what is the motive of Satan? What is his goal once he gets you into that? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's it. So I want you to imagine. Um, your kid comes up to you, and uh, my daughter, Elliot, says, Hey, Dad, I want to go over to Susie Q's house. And at Susie Q's house, um, they watch pornography all the time, and they smoke pot. But don't worry, I won't do it. Would you let her go? Well, no, because, like, that's obviously not good for her. Now, what if she just had, uh, uh, Susie Q just had really liberal parents? Like, no, I want to really teach her kids at a young age to watch pornography, to be, you know, sexually uh, uh, clever and to figure stuff out and to express themselves. And I uh, really want to expose them to marijuana at a young age because it's freeing and fun. And, And what if, like, that was this woman's goal with kids? And then Elliot says, hey, Dad, I want to go over to Susie Q's house. Now would you let her go? No, because her agenda, the parent's agenda, is only to do harm to your kids. And as soon as she goes over to that, will she leave that experience unaffected? Even just by watching it and being around it, will she be harmed just by being there? And the answer is yes. And so God steps in and says, look, right, that's bad. This is infinitely worse on a spiritual level. This opens you up to things you don't even have categories for, not because it's a trick, but because it's real. And so God is like, I don't want any of this near my people. I want it out of here. I want you to get rid of it, okay? And if somebody tries to get you to even talk, like to go near and say, oh, it's just, it's just a Ouija board. It's just Wicca. It's just this. It's just a horoscope. It's just that. You say no, because God is passionately opposed to any of this because it puts you right in the home of Satan who wants to steal and kill and destroy. We'd never do it with our kids, right? And God would never do it with us. So we take the stance on this, not because we just love rules. It's because we are for joy and Christ-likeness. If my daughter came up to me and said, you just don't want me to have fun. Your home is all about rules. I would look at her and say, you're stupid. You're stupid, straight up, because I want your joy. That's what I want, and that's why I'm telling you not to do this. And if I come up with a rule, right, there's never a point in God's mind where he says, I'm just going to be a party pooper. His goal is always your joy in Christ, your Christ-likeness, every rule he gives. Amen, Village Church? Amen. And so we have young kids who are so susceptible. They're going through adolescence and discovering spirituality, and they're in a world that's offering and saying, yes, your body and soul. And so we come around our little kids, and we protect them, and we train them in righteousness, and we prepare them that they will be tempted to go to people's homes. There might be stuff there, and when they see it, do they wait it out because they don't want to look uncool? No, we tell them to flee and to run because it's more dangerous than you have categories to understand. I got to keep going. Verse four. Wow, we made one verse. Don't worry, this will go quick. Uh, The Philistines assembled, and they came, and they camped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Point being, the Philistines are making their way heavily into Israel territory. They're getting bold. They are winning. They have more troops than Israel could possibly even begin to battle against. Verse five. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
Now, you have to remember this. There was a demon that God had allowed to taunt and to torment Saul. We have no evidence that this demon has gone away, and this is a crazy man, okay? Lies are being told to him all the time from this demon. It put him into a place of craziness where he tried to kill people. I mean, this guy is losing his mind and his soul. And so he's in this desperate situation, and it says this, since Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Long story short, God had given Israel a number of acceptable ways to talk to him and to hear back from him. And Saul tries all of these, but here's the quandary. God doesn't respond to him in any way, shape, or form. Now, here's what I want you to catch from this. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, if you are not, we call it, saved, if you have never trusted in Christ, here's what the Bible teaches. This is where it gets a little heavy, and then I hope, like, for some of you, this is a good thing for you. Um, It teaches that God's not your dad. The idea that we're all God's children and God loves everybody equally is not found in the Bible. That's, does God love everybody? Yes. But, right? There is a special relationship, a father-son, father-daughter relationship that God has with believers who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has not come to faith in Jesus is outside the family in biblical terms. So when a kid comes up to God and says, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me, I need you, you need to fix this, is God obligated to help that person? No. If a kid comes up to you and uh, calls you and says, hey, I don't know you at all. Um, Actually, um, I've never really spoken to you, but I hear that you've got a lot of resources at your disposal. Um, I'm in jail and I need $50,000 to get bailed out. Will you do that for me? What's that dad going to do? The dad's going to say, I don't know you. Like, really, who, who are you? And maybe if they're incredibly wealthy, they'll just be gracious. But at the end of the day, let's be real. Most of you wouldn't do it. And here's the idea. Many people pray to God. And they pray to God. And they say, God, you haven't fixed my problem. You haven't intervened in my life. You haven't um, made my life happy. Like, I'm in debt. My marriage is broken. Um, this is frustrating. I'm lo- losing my job. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. God, your aim in life is my joy and happiness, right, Lord? And you're not doing that. And God is sitting here saying, you've never even trusted in me. You haven't even come to me and said, can I be your son or daughter? I mean, I've opened this up for you. I've made it so easy. All the other religions, all the other false religions that ultimately um, are, are, are inspired by demonic influences, I've come to you. They say, work your way for it. Earn my love. I've said, I don't want you to earn anything. I want to give it to you free. In fact, I love you so much that I'm going to give you my son who's going to die on the cross for your sins so you don't have to pay for any of your sins. So my justice is upheld. My love for you is extended and you don't have to work for my love like I'm some abusive father who's like, Can I, do I have your love yet? He says, no, I love you unconditionally, but here's the deal. Will you trust in my son? Will you believe in me? Will you truly believe in me? And so many people say, no, 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 no. But when my life is hard, fix it now. And if you don't, you're a bad God. And he's made everything, everything available to us in Jesus Christ. And here's, here's the fundamental rule. The reason God doesn't answer Saul is because Saul, we'll speak in modern terms, is not a Christian. Because Saul is, as we'll learn, an enemy of God. He's an enemy. Could Saul at any moment become a child of God? Yeah, yeah, he can, but he doesn't. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. At this point, they should say, oh, they're all dead. <laughs> but they don't. That I may go to her and acquire of her. And his servant said to him, oh, we know exactly where one is at, which shows the spiritual decay amongst his chief leaders. 
And he says, behold, there is a medium at Endor. And in your notes, number two, we dabble because we are desperate for the wrong things. Desperate people take desperate measures. Amen? Does Satan love desperate people? Yes, because when we're desperate, I love this line, we're dumb. We are so inclined to do the most ridiculous things when we are in places of desperation. The non-Christian in desperation, when they don't get answers from one person that they like, they get it from someone else, they will go anywhere that will relieve the pressure of the things that are creating the desperation. The child of God gets on our knees, we go to God, and we wait. We beg him to intervene, we obey in the process, and we wait because we believe that at the right moment he will intervene. And if he chooses to withhold intervention, we believe it is only for his glory and our good. We believe that. And so the Christian does not run after different gods and practices and spiritual things and crazy healings that involve different demonic forces. We wait and we plead with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the ruler of this universe. You can do anything at any moment. You are good. You always, 100% of the time, do what's best for your kids. I've come to Jesus by faith. I'm your kid. Do what's best, please. And oftentimes we don't um, get the answers we want, but is God still good? All the time, God is good. Satan tried to get Job into a desperate place. Satan went up to God in the book of Job and said, hey, if I can basically make this guy's life hard enough, um, he'll curse you, right? And uh, so God says, have your field day. Do whatever you want to Job, just don't kill him. So Satan takes away everything, puts him into a place of pure, utter misery. Job's wife looks at him and says, curse God and die. And he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what God's people do, okay? Everyone else, like his wife, says, curse God and die. Go after other things. Get your relief in other places because he isn't good enough, strong enough, powerful enough, loving enough, whatever, to fix your issue. Desperate people do dumb things. Look at verse 8. Saul risked everything for this relief. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. By the way, if you have to disguise yourself to go someplace and it's not Halloween— Something's wrong. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Saul will break laws despite the consequences. You've ever seen desperate people desperate for something? They not only put their own life in danger, they put other people's lives in danger. They break laws. And and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And then he puts her life in jeopardy. And the woman in verse 9 says, surely you know what Saul has done how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Like this woman escaped while all of her friends and peers who were in the same industry she was were, were killed. She escapes. She doesn't want to die. She's seen what happens. And Saul then says one of the most ridiculous things. He says this in verse 10. So Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He looks at her and he basically says this. I will not uphold God's law in this. You are free. I will disobey God's word. Nothing will happen to you. Because he knows what God's word says. Now read with me in verse 11. It says, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Whatever she saw, she's used to necromancing or mediuming, whatever the verb is of that. Uh, and she is now seeing something she's never seen before. This shocks her. So whether or not she'd only seen demons before, now she's under new territory and new circumstances, and she's freaked out. 
And it says, uh, when this woman, verse 12, saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid, which is ridiculous. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And Saul said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up. Like, really? That's your God? All right, okay. Uh, an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, there's something interesting that uh, the text doesn't tell us. The necromancer, the medium, is now no longer a part of this. So one of two things is happening. Um, the spirit of Samuel, the actual spirit becomes visible, and there's a conversation between the two. Or the spirit of Samuel inhabits the necromancer's body, and she is speaking as Samuel to him. Those are the most likely options here. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, so now there's a direct conversation, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Let me just say this. If, you're, if somebody you love is dead and they are a believer in Jesus Christ, don't bring them back. <laughs> it's way better over there, okay? Saul answered, like, I mean, Samuel's grumpy at this point. Saul answered, I'm in great distress. Now, hear the words out of his mouth. Saul's perception of his greatest dilemma. I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. Oh yeah, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. Out of his own mouth, you hear the priority of his own words. What does Saul think his greatest dilemma is? The Philistines. Is that his greatest dilemma? No! He is an enemy of God. His greatest dilemma is to be reconciled back to God. He comes to God on Saul's terms, wanting salvation for himself, despite the fact he's God's enemy and he hasn't played by God's rules. Now, pop quiz, if Saul had come to God on God's terms to be reconciled to God by faith, would God have received him? Yes, but that's the problem. He won't do it. God is like a genie for him. Fix the problem when I have it. But that's not a relationship. That's not trusting in the living God with our entire life. Uh, I want to close with a warning. Verse 16, I want to read the rest of this. This is just so powerful. Watch this desperation for the wrong thing. Verse 16, Samuel said, I want you to read this with like that voice of exasperation, like, oh, really? You are bothering me. Like, that's what I think his voice is. So the last words that Samuel ever said to Saul were basically this. The kingdom is being torn from you. And he walks away from him. And it's a, a, a basically, Saul, your leadership is over. You're done. And they never see each other ever again. So now they're seeing each other again. And here's what Samuel says. The Lord has done to you Verse 17, as he spoke by me earlier. Remember that? For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. I'm not going to tell you something new. It's not like God changes mind or the word of God shifts. I already told you, you've lost. It's David's. You rejected God. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his Fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, okay? So because you've bothered me, I'm going to restate to you what I just said. Now i got a new message for you. So listen up, buddy. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. You have 24 hours to live. That's your punishment. That's your punishment. Okay? So pop quiz. You have 24 hours left to live. 
and a ghost who is Samuel comes to you and says, you're going to die. You're God's enemy. There's a major problem here. What is your greatest dilemma that is standing right in front of you? God, let's reconcile this thing, right? So at this moment, all logic says to me, I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to beg God for his forgiveness. Lord, I want to do this thing right. Like, teach me what this means. And here's Saul's response in verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with repentance. No, fear, because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. That's it. 24 hours left to live non-negotiable. He's afraid. When all he needs to do is get on his face and tell God he's sorry. This is a hard, hard heart. God's given him every chance. The book of 1 Chronicles chapter 10 verses 13 to 14 give us an overview of why Saul died. I want to read this to you. So Saul died for his breach of faith. And there were two breaches of faith that led to his death. Here's the first one. He broke faith with the Lord And that he did not keep the command of the Lord, which means when he was supposed to kill Amalek and all the people, he didn't. He broke it, lost the kingdom of that. But then here's what it says. And also, because he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, catch this, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. This angered God so much. He had already determined by the first breach of faith to um, uh, take away his kingdom. But this second one put God over the edge because God feels so intensely about this subject that as soon as Saul dabbled in it, he stepped back and said, you have 24 hours left to live. That's powerful. Does God feel strongly about this issue? (laughs) I'd say so. The Lord is serious. I want to um, share with you a passage of scripture from Acts 19. I love this. We're going to end on a high note, if that's cool with you. 19, 18 to 20, and uh, here's what it says about people who are practicing these sorts of witchcraft. And many of those who are now believers, they came. So he says there's a whole group of people who are Christians, and they came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Is that a lot of money? Yeah. Like, I, I want you to catch what happened when the Holy Spirit grabbed their heart. They confessed and they divulged these practices. They got them out into the light and any access points to these things, what did they do? They burned them. Even though they could have sold them for more money, we don't do that because why would we give somebody else access to this kind of dark, demonic, harmful experience? And then this is so great. It says this, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Bill Church, who wins? Jesus? Every time. He has made a mockery of the demonic realm by triumphing over them on the cross and through the resurrection. Their destiny is sealed. They are desperate trying to take anyone down with them, disguising themselves as an angel of light. But Bill Church, as believers in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You know what is truth. You know what brings God the most joy. You know why he's so against these practices because they only harm you in the end. And we know what God wants. And we believe when he says it's the best and the right way, we follow him. We believe that it's better to wait on the Lord rather than to go outside of the boundaries of his word to get relief from our desperation. Was this event real? Yes. 
Does this normally happen when dead people, real, live, dead people, come back? No. Real, live, dead people. <laughs> Just caught it? I was like, somebody's murmuring. I said something. That was, thank you, Don. That's okay. It doesn't bother me. Did this happen in other places in the Bible? Answer, yes. Do you remember when Jesus is on the mount, they call it of transfiguration? And who shows up with him, previously dead, uh, Moses and Elijah. At the very least, Moses is there with him. Who, and um, So we know it's possible that God, this is in his jurisdiction. It's, in his, it's okay, at least for God, to do this. Should I ever expect the dead to visit me? Answer, no. And if they do, most likely 99.9% chance, who is it? Demons masquerading as an angel of light to trick you with the objective to steal, kill, and destroy. This week, I'm going to send out an email, uh, and it's, it might be next week. We'll see when I get to it. Uh, it's a Q&A with a bunch of questions. And so with our Sanctity series, we did a Q&A, and um, already I've anticipated a number of questions. I'll just read you the questions, and then we'll close in prayer and worship. I had an experience with a deceased relative or friend. I heard their voice, saw them, or had some kind of tangible experience with them. Was it really them? I used to play with Ouija boards, participate in seances, etc. I've since trusted in Christ. Could I still be possessed or oppressed by demons? Are tarot cards really that big of a deal, and why are Christians so vehemently opposed to them? I get my horoscope daily. I don't really believe it, but it's fun. Should I stop? I'm not a Christian. Could I be possessed? I love to watch demonic horror movies. Are these sinful, and should I stop? Now, we don't have time to go into all those, but expect an email. If you're not on, there's a little plug, our Friday notes, turn in your connect slip, because in the next week or two, you'll be getting those in that same email list. Let's pray together. Lord, as we um, navigate oh, complex issues like this, um, God, I'm just so aware of the um, experiences of people in our church before they came to Christ, and even some after, just not knowing what your word said. God, uh, my prayer for every person in this room is that they would come to Jesus Christ, not by works, not trying to earn your love, but simply by faith. God, that you would open up our eyes to see and ears to hear and our heart to believe that you're not a God who demands us to work for salvation. Uh, You're not like all of these other false religions, but you are a God who loves us and asks us just to reconcile through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has never come to you on your terms, simply by faith, God, would your spirit move in them and do that? May we be, not be like Saul, who had every opportunity, even to the point where we're given our time of death. God, may we not be like that. May we be humble. Lord, you win. Lord, for every one of us, I pray that we would be wise and discerning and loving as we navigate really a spiritually dark, dark world. And Lord, may you draw many people to Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the simple, beautiful gospel. And may they divulge their practices and wrongdoing and come to Jesus and give him all the glory. That is our prayer. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus who can only do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.